realistically strange and objectively styled. Let's play ball. It's effectively wild. It's effectively wild. It's effectively wild. Hello and welcome to episode 2058 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rally of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. We don't often start by talking about other sports, but from time to time, I find it illuminating to bring up some example of something that happened in another sport and kind of compare and contrast, look for comps in baseball. And I was thinking of that in the wake of the Aaron Rodgers injury for the Jets in their first game of the season. So Rodgers, of course, was this much-hyped offseason addition for the Jets who were featured on Hard Knocks because of the hype about Rodgers. And, of course, Rodgers is perhaps past his prime. There were questions about how good he would be anyway or how good the Jets would be with Rodgers. But he got hurt. He tore his Achilles tendon four snaps into the season before he'd even completed a pass. And that's that, right? So they sort of structured their hopes around Rodgers. The hopes hinged on him. He recruited other players to join them. And now that's all just gone immediately, right? So I was trying to think of some baseball comp for that. What's the closest comp to a player who was a a much-hyped addition, lots of excitement, who was just wiped off the board immediately like that. And it's also partly just the legacy of Jets quarterbacks, right? Yeah. They're just, they've been so bad for so long, and the Jets mm-hmm. have been so disappointing for so long, and they haven't mm-hmm. won in so long. Mm-hmm. And there were hopes that he would change that. So it's partly the team and the position and all of that baggage that comes with that. I don't yeah. know if there there's a perfect comp because... It's football. This is one of the ways in which I think this is kind of an enlightening comparison in that rarely does one guy get hurt in baseball and it feels like the season's over, right? Like, you might have some fan reactions or overreactions, people saying that, but rarely is it actually true just because in baseball— no one player really has as much to do with your team's fortunes as a quarterback in football, right? That can be make or break in a way that most baseball superstars' fortunes are not. Yeah, I mean, like, even some of the examples that come to mind, not of guys who immediately got hurt upon signing with a new team, I, I can think of guys who have gotten hurt, like, in their first season of a free agency deal, like, most approximately, maybe, Jacob deGrom, right? Yes. But in terms of guys who, like, it feels, I I think it can feel like the season is going to come down to their ability to recover from injury or not. Like, I'm sure if you asked Yankees fans right now, like, they would tell you that, you know, the fortunes of the team were really tied up in Judge, although a lot of other things went wrong. So, you know, (laughs) maybe that... Carlos Rodon as another right. <laughs> a big offseason addition who just right. immediately was hurt. So. Right, right. But yeah, it, it doesn't often read the way that it does in football with quarterbacks or in basketball just because yeah. there's fewer guys on the, on the court at any given time, right? So it's like if you lose LeBron, you're... <laughs> you're yeah. down a LeBron, you know, and that tends to not go great for a team. So mm-hmm. so I think that that it's 
hard to find perfect parallels, but I do think that there are are probably teams where, you know, if you look back on the season, they were really close to making the postseason and they missed a half season of Mike Trout or whatever, you know, and Mm -hmm. that feels like it was the difference, the replacement of that play. It's a less direct comp, but Mm -hmm. yeah, Yeah. man, like, wow, it's, uh, it was wild, Ben. Did you watch any Mm -hmm. of that football game? Of course not, no. (laughs) But but I was made aware of it quite quickly. Yeah, I would imagine that various channels of the ringer went on such high <laughs> yes. alert that they spilled over into um you know slack channels that didn't cons- yeah. that don't generally concern them condolences to Sean Fennessy and Cope but yeah i asked the facebook group and the discord group for any comps that came to mind and degrom was cited several times of course sure. He pitched in six games, at least, but but he got hurt yeah. in spring training. So it right. was like, oh, here we go. Here Although we go. Yeah. with him, it wasn't even surprising so much as, no. well, of course, this was going right. to happen, right? <laughs> so so that's one. People cited Radon as well. Again, this is uh, the most recent examples that sure. come to mind, maybe. Another good one was Corey Kluber in mm. 2020. Remember, he, he pitched one inning with the Rangers, <laughs> another yeah. would-be Rangers ace who was just immediately yeah, like after the, the Class A trade. And and he was coming off a third-place Cy Young finish after a first-place Cy Young finish, which was after a third-place Cy Like, he was right. a super ace at that time. Yeah. And they traded Class A for him and DeShields and then one inning and he tore his shoulder and that was that, right? So yeah. that was a pretty good one, I think, or a pretty bad one for Rangers fans. And yeah. It, People remembered some that didn't turn out to be season-ending, but like George Springer getting hurt early in his Blue Jays career, or Derek Jeter getting hurt in the first game of, I think it was the 2002 season, had his shoulder dislocated on a slide against the Blue Jays. He ended up not missing that much time, and he came back and was good. Chris Bryant last year, although he he didn't get hurt until I think late in April. But yeah, he had been was, playing for a couple of weeks when yeah. when he was felled. Right. Yeah. yeah. Josh Johnson in 2013. Steven Strasburg, of course, getting hurt after he resigned with the Nationals. But yeah, that feels different to me. It's though. different. Yeah, yeah, it's different. And and they had just won a World Series, so that right, kind of yeah. cushions the blow, right? Although. Number of people mentioned Steven Strasburg getting hurt as a rookie, right? When he hurt right. his UCL. Yeah. And I think that actually might be the closest comp when it comes to just how deflating it is. Sure. When a, a top prospect comes up and is immediately great. Yeah. The Yankees are going through this now with Jason Dominguez, right? Yeah. Who was causing a lot of excitement and had been very good in his early games. And then, boom, or spring, right? He has yeah. a UCL injury and... It's not as devastating for a position player as for a pitcher, but still, it's like, oh, man, here, the future has arrived. Isn't this fun? And then suddenly, nope, UCL. Similarly, Strasburg with his UCL injury just after it was Strasmus and everyone was so excited for his outings and everything. And then, no, we don't get to see that for a while and you never know if you're going to see that again. So maybe that's the best comp just in terms of how it affects your outlook and your optimism. Yeah, I think that that's a pretty good one. I'm struggling to come up with one that that sort of meets those parameters better. But yeah, I mean, like Jets fans, the joy of victory, the agony of maybe a season of defeat. It was not 
a happy time for them, I am mm-hmm. given to understand. I don't want to delight in anybody's injury, but it is like the most Jets thing yes. that yes. one can envision. And I, as a person who does watch football, was watching that game, Ben, and like before Rodgers went down, I was like, I think um, Aaron Rodgers is going to get hit a lot. And like, that's not me having profound insight into offensive line play. Mm-hmm. I think that that's, that was both anticipated and remarked upon by others. And then I was like, I guess he's not going to get hit very much anymore. Um, mm-hmm. That's right. He's not yeah. going to be able to be out there really. Yeah. Gnarly. Some people cited Justin Verlander as a 40 ish guy going to New York and then getting hurt before he'd done anything. Right. Yeah. Although, yeah. It, wasn't season ending when he right. got hurt so it was a, a little different and it's a little different yeah th- there were some that i had forgotten that were actually pretty good i think like well some people mentioned the edwin diaz injury this sure. spring which he was not a new addition he had been right. with the mets but he had just signed the big contract and yeah. then he got hurt in the wbc and that Ugh. was somewhat devastating so so that's yeah, yeah not not bad but a lot of people cited ones, you know, players who, like, underperformed, like Carl Pavano or Javi Baez or something. But I'm talking about just— Yeah, that's that's yeah. different, though. That's a mm-hmm. more—I mean, injuries are part of baseball, too. So I guess I'm maybe about to uh, draw a false distinction. But there's something that feels more normal about underperformance. And I'm not yeah. tagging any individual guy with that. And I'm not like, well, yeah, like, Javi— underperforming is like totally normal though like him swinging through his butt and then not making (laughs) contact is pretty normal for him yes (laughs) but there's a lot of underperformance in baseball and like good players are bad for stretches of the season like that's that's a reality that i think we tend to underestimate like how streaky guys some some guys can be Mm -hmm. and then there's like getting sproined you know there's just being incapacitated in a different way that I, I think it it registers differently yeah. because just like guys can be streaky in a bad way, they can pull out of skids, right? They can make mm-hmm. an adjustment. They can tweak their swing or, you know, learn a new pitch. And then all of a sudden they're, they're off to the races again. Mm-hmm. But like the injury thing just feels so much more in some cases permanent for a good reason or at least permanent for that season. And it can it feels like portentous, you know? Yeah. Especially if it's a guy just at the beginning of a long contract. And like, you know, it's like if a guy gets hurt, you're like, well, when's he gonna get hurt again? Like, is right. this is mm-hmm. this what we're gonna have with this guy now? Is this who this guy is? Is he injury prone? You know, it can feel it can feel bad not only for this season, but what you your imagination sort of extrapolates for future seasons too. Yeah. Yeah, and some people cited players who went on to have disappointing tenures with the team, but really year one wasn't actually disastrous. We just kind of forget. People cited Anthony Rendon with the Angels. Well, he was actually good and and pretty healthy in his first year with the Angels, which was 2020, but still. Or Ken Griffey Jr. (laughs) Yeah, Ken Griffey Jr. with the Reds, who had a pretty good year his first year with them. Maybe somewhat disappointing, but, you know, 145 games, 40 homers, five and a half war. But we remember the rest of his Reds tenure, right? Most of his value with the Reds was in that season. And... 
I think, you know, people cited Kyle Schwarber in 2016. Drew Smiley, I'd forgotten yeah. after he was traded from the Rays to the Mariners, just yeah. never made it out of spring training and never, never actually it, pitched for them. A, yeah, didn't throw a regular season pitch. Right. Although, you know, that was Drew Smiley. It's maybe a little bit different. It's not as marquee yeah, an acquisition. Yeah, but like, <laughs> Ben, they could have used a Drew Smiley. Yes, definitely. People cited, now this was a, a good one that I had forgotten, Mo Vaughn mm. signing what was at the time a, a very large free agent contract with the Angels. And then Wikipedia says he started his Anaheim career by falling down the visitor's dugout steps on his oh first play God. of his first game, badly spraining his ankle. So yeah, oh, that, that fits the description in terms of it just yeah. happened immediately, right? Yeah. So that's uh, pretty good or pretty bad. Another yeah. one I'd forgotten, this was a, a while ago, but Danny Tartable with the mm. Phillies. So this yeah. is a, a deeper cut. This is going back. This is 1997. He was coming off a, a really nice season, and then the Phillies signed him February 1997. And in his first game, he fouled a pitch off his foot and was out for the next few and then came back for a couple but had to be taken out again. And it turned out that his foot was fractured and... Mm. His season was over. His career was over. That was the end of his whole career. So, so that's that fits, I think. Yeah. And then Nick Asaski, I'd forgotten about this too, but in 1990, he signed with Atlanta coming off a, a good year with the Red Sox in 89, got some MVP votes, and then he was diagnosed with vertigo nine games into oh, the season, man. and his career was over too. So that that kind of fits also. So... There are some, you know, it's, uh, I don't know that they're perfect comps, but those are, I guess, as close as you're going to come. Probably people were going all the way back to like Ernie Broglio after the Brock for Broglio trade, or <laughs> we have uh, some listeners with long memories. But yeah. yeah, I think it does come down to that distinction between just baseball and football. It's different and yeah. there's no perfect equivalent for no. a quarterback that just can devastate your season like that. This is why you build from the lines out, Ben. You build from mm. the lines out, and then I'll take your word for it. Yeah, that's mm. that's the that's what the the good teams do. Build from the lines out. Josh Donaldson getting hurt after signing his first big Twins contract or his mm. big Twins contract in his first game, yeah. but yeah, I mean, yeah, there's some good ones here. But I'll link to the thread if you want to peruse all the responses. I I did want to. This is kind of the the opposite situation. Not a, a player whose hopes, uh, the team's hopes are, are built around him getting hurt immediately, but a player coming back after a long injury absence to find a completely different circumstance with his team. Because we're recording on Tuesday, John mm -hmm. Means is yeah. making his return to the Orioles yes, after sure Tommy John recovery, yeah. 17 months or so. And I, I can't really imagine, I, I didn't ask for listener submissions, but, but what's a better example of a player getting hurt and then coming back to the same team and just having everything be completely different than when he left? Because John Beads has only ever played for terrible Orioles teams. Yeah. He's never known a good Orioles team that, that he has personally played for. Like, he debuted in 2018. The Orioles were terrible. They continued to be terrible in 2019, 2020, 2021. 2022, he got hurt in his second start. So when he was done for that year, the Orioles were 1-5 on the season. So they were off to what seemed like another terrible start, terrible season. And then, of course... 
as soon as he was gone or later that season, things turned around and they started promoting prospects and they ended up being kind of a contender last year. And now they're one of the best teams in baseball. So he's returning like the catcher he threw to in his last game for the Orioles was Anthony Bemboon, right? This was, wow, this was yeah. before Adley Rutschman was promoted. So now he comes back. Rutschman's around and Gutter Henderson and Westbrook and just like everyone, like everything is completely changed. It's uh, not that he fully Rip Van Winkled, like he's been awake, <laughs> he's been conscious. You know, <laughs> you mean they didn't put him in stasis during <laughs> no, his TJ recovery? Not like in, in cryo recovery or anything. So he's been aware and uh, presumably he's been around the team and he knows these players and everything. Yeah. But but I can't think of a more dramatic change. Like a, a guy he has a season-ending injury, comes back the following season, finds himself on not a tanking, terrible team, but actually a really good team with a ton yeah. of promising young players. It's got to be got to be jarring for him. Like, yes, how does he feel? Like, I'm sure he's excited to be back and excited to be part of a good team. But I wonder if there's a a sense of I don't know displacement or alienation. It's like. How did this happen? Like, uh, do I feel like I'm part of this team? I was gone right. for the entire rebuild that just happened. Right. I want to think about how I say this carefully so that I can be like, you know, kind and not make our Oriole fan listeners feel like I'm snarking because I'm not. I'm not I'm not about to snark. And I know everyone feels like our projections for the Orioles have been a season-long snark, you know. <laughs> um I know that that has raised some ire, you know. So like I everyone relax. I'm not So like you're right. But also like here are some ways that you're wrong, which is that, like, if you're means, like, his last full season, he was, like, a, what, two-and-a-half win player. He had that really good year. So, like, he is he is returning to a team that is different, but also the quality of the pitching is not as not different, different as you <laughs> might think, like, at least in terms of the starters. Over a full season, I know some the, there's been better results lately, but, mm-hmm. like, okay. You yeah. know, everyone chill. I'm. I, I think the Orioles are a good baseball team. I'm not. I'm not doing a thing here. I'm not I'm doing a bit. <laughs> yeah. I'm not making a point. I mean, I am making a point, but I'm not mm-hmm. making a snarky point. I'm not making a mean point. I'm simply saying, you've got so many, you know, Kyles floating around, and mm-hmm. some of them are guys who, on a different team, would maybe not make a postseason rotation but for Mm -hmm. this Orioles team I sound like I'm in the Black Lodge (laughs) Um, but yeah so you know much is different some things are less different than they were but yeah it has to be I mean like I'm trying to think is there a guy who was like an injured Astro, who would be a comp here, uh, mm, right? But like that, that was such a, yeah. I don't know, man. It it is a it is a strange circumstance, and I would feel, I would feel excited, but I'd also feel nervous. You know, you come in after a long absence, and you're not sure how it's gonna go. It might take a little while to get kind of fully in your your groove and you're looking in the rear view and those rays are only three games back and 
all of a sudden it's like it's a lot of pressure. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. But he seems like a, you know, he seems like a together young man. He's throwing a no-hitter. He's cool under pressure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's not like he's coming back and he can no longer make the team. <laughs> like, now we're, right. we're too good to want to employ John Means. No. Depends how good he is, obviously. But if he comes back and pitches like he did in 2019 or 2021, then they would welcome him with open arms. They could yeah. certainly use that John Means in this yes. rotation. So, yeah, if he came back and... It wasn't just Grayson Rodriguez. It was like a a stacked, like, if it were the pitcher equivalent of what has happened for them on the position player side, where they've promoted all these incredible prospects, pitching-wise, that hasn't really been the case other than Rodriguez. So he still has a place, right? So, yeah. Rounding into form, Grayson. He's rounding into just everyone. Relax. Some people also cited, by the way, Otani, like finding out after Otani signed with the Angels and then having it be reported that he had UCL issues Mm, before he'd even debuted for them. Yeah. Although those issues didn't actually sideline him and prevent him from pitching until later in that season. But that was deflating to find out, okay, he's coming over and uh, now he's going to be the Angels and he's going to be this two-way player. And then, oh, but he's already got UCL damage and he's gotten treatment for this. Well, this is... This is dismaying, and in retrospect, it it should have been. It turns out to be dismaying. It did eventually cost him time, but a little bit different in that it it wasn't like day one he hurt himself as he was uh, just making his debut. All right, so I know you wanted to get some some Mariners fan angst out here because it's been a, a little bit of a rough patch for your Mariners lately, and they've fallen out of playoff position, right, as we speak. Yeah. They they were in first place in the AOS, or at least tied for it, and now... They had a couple of days where they were in sole possession of first, ben. Okay, don't want to take that away from them. <laughs> they had that. They could have it again. But right now, the Astros have solidified... They're standing in the standings. Those those Astros, you, you can't get rid of them. You can't kill them. You can't quit them. And yeah. the Mariners' position is uh, looking a little shakier than it was the last time we talked. These things can change very quickly at this time of year. Yeah. But this has not been a change that is to your liking. No, I um I don't care for it. You know, part of it is like the, the drama of the fall, you know, to go from a 7 78 winning percentage in in August to 273, which Ben, that's much worse, you know. It is. Yeah, yeah they're three and eight in this young month. I guess I wish on some level that everyone could have been in my living room to watch me reacting to their game <laughs> last night because I had a bad feeling early, Ben. I was so angry. I was frustrated. This is a game where they pulled out ahead early against a Los Angeles Angels team that is really a big league team in in name only. One can only really attribute that to some portion of their roster less than 26. Otani didn't play again. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Earlier in the evening, the Astros had lost to the Oakland Athletics themselves. Mm. Barely a big league team Mm -hmm. had been shut out, in fact. You know, Logan Gilbert pitched pretty well. He had a quality start. It was very dramatic. In the top of the ninth, the Angels loaded the bases. 
They did not score. But then, good for them, in the bottom of the ninth, the Mariners loaded the bases and famously also did not score. Yeah. The Angels pulled ahead in the 10th, you know, on a two-run shot from Brandon Drury. Why didn't they walk Brandon Drury to get to Kyrie Pierce? I mean, like, look, these are questions that I was asking in real time. And you think, well, that's it. It's over. And then in the bottom of the 10th, Julio, Ben, mm. have you seen this home yes. run? Yes, yes. How was that a home run? <laughs> How did he hit that ball in that place? And it went out. It went out so far. It was his 30th home run. Mm-hmm. So now Julio has 30 home runs and 36 stolen bases. He's, you know, he's assured a 30-30 season. He might go 30-40. Do you know how many, do you know how many players, Ben, have had a 30-30 season in the integration era? Do you know how many? Not many his age, that's for sure. I think I saw there were like three something, maybe three previous uh, players his age who had done that. So. been 42 other players total now some of them have done it multiple times like you're mm-hmm. like meg i i am given to understand that some of them have done it multiple times and you you're you're all right you're all correct yeah. Yeah. but like it's it's a small club yeah it's a rod a rod trout and acuna yeah were the only other members of the yeah. age 22 season or younger 30 yeah. 30 club He's 22 until almost the very end of this year, Ben, you know? Mm-hmm. And so you sit there and you're just like, wow. You know, he went four for five. He had that two-run shot. He hit a double. Yeah. And then they were almost out of it, Ben. Yeah. They were almost out of the top of it, but then they weren't. And then so I felt very frustrated. I was upset, you know? Mm-hmm. Feels like it's slipping out of their hands and you you sit there and you watch them lose games to the the Reds and the Rays and you're like maybe they can't be good middle teams even though you mm-hmm. remember them sweeping the Astros you remember that Ben <laughs> you happened. remember it mm-hmm. <laughs> but then you look at you look at their you look at it and you look at September <laughs> and they have had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight games where they have allowed at least six runs. That's mm. too many, you know. Yeah, and pitching That's has too... been their strength. So not is, lately. Uh, uncharacteristic, but yes, not, not lately. Not lately, Ben. And Fandom I get is painful. Like, they're tired. You know, they haven't had a day off in a while. Mm-hmm. And they don't have a day off for a while. Like, they are going to be pretty ragged come October 1st. But, like, it just feels bad. And I want to be able to focus on this incredible back half of the season that Julio is having. You know, mm-hmm. I want to focus on this young man having, he's having a six win season. You know yeah, how slow he started? A slow start. Yeah. Do you know how, do you, Ben, I remember. I was so mad, Ben. I was so mad yesterday. And I haven't been like that exercised about a sporting loss in like a long time. But I Mm -hmm. was, I was animated. I was swearing. I was yelling. Julio (laughs) hit, hit the home run and I did a like little clap, you know, like, Mm -hmm. let's go. And then, and it doesn't matter. But I'm just saying it's frustrating. And I'm not, 
I'm not like this isn't a sports talk radio. I'm mad at the player. It's just disappointing. It's just a bummer. And to your point, you know, these things can change very quickly. Was yesterday's loss for them demoralizing? Yes, I expect so. But they have two more against the Angels. They got a three-game set against Oakland. They do have to contend with the Dodgers in between. And then, like, the last, from the 22nd of September until the 1st of October, they are just playing teams from Texas. And so, like, one imagines that that, that's really, that's really what it's going to come down to. But you have, you simply... You simply must in a game where Julio Rodriguez goes four for five and hits a game tying shot in extras to give you life. Mm-hmm. You must Tough. win. And they did not do that. They did not win. And I felt very demoralized. I was so upset. And then I realized, Ben, that I had watched all of my recipe shows already. They I <laughs> blew through them on YouTube. I did not have that to distract me. It was too the other thing about it, Ben, the other thing about it is that it it was a long game, you know? And so they kept you late to lose. And that feels bad too. It was a three three hour and nineteen minute game. You know how long mm-hmm. it's been since I've watched a three hour and nineteen minute game? Well, when yeah. they lost in a walk-off to the Cincinnati Reds. Actually, actually, <laughs> that was the last time I watched one about that long because that was a three hour and seventeen minute long game. Mm-hmm. I'm not angry anymore. Just, just disappointed. I'm just disappointed. And I do mm-hmm. feel kind of demoralized. And I would like this, you know, there are so many guys on that team that I like. They got a great vibe. They have a good vibe, Ben. And they're getting they're getting some good years out of good players. And then they're not playing particularly great right now. Or at least they're not pitching as great as they could, you know? And yeah. so it's it doesn't feel awesome and you wish that it felt better than it does. It's the Angels Ben. They're not it's a why are you why why are you <laughs> This is why fandom is so difficult. Why because are you it makes why, you care. And why? so <laughs> recently I, I, <laughs> it made you very happy that they were playing see, so well. And uh, yeah, now it makes you very so sad. Happy. And now I'm very sad. And like, here's the thing: I understand you have the you have the zombie runner. It feels bad. It feels bad to intentionally walk Brandon Drury to get to Kyrene Paris. I understand, and I don't know if what I am advocating is actually analytically defensible. But in that moment, I sat there on my couch and I said, "Why are you pitching to him? Why are you pitch to him? You should walk him and get to Kyrene Paris." No offense, Kyrene, but like you should do that. Because he is a less good hitter at this stage of his big league career. <laughs> you switched That's into what you should to do. full then, fan mode. Don't tell me about your win expectancy tables. You got to walk that guy in that situation. You got to walk mean, that guy. Maybe you did. You got to walk that guy. And <laughs> yeah. then I really thought it was going to be okay, though, because like the Angels scored one run in the 11th, right? And it was Gritchick who did it. And I thought to myself, First of all, has anyone checked up on Randall Gritchick? Is that guy okay? Does he feel okay? I would feel very slighted if I were Randall Gritchick. I would feel like I was unwanted because I have recently been demonstrated to, in a particular context of my life, be not wanted. Yeah, placed on waivers multiple times, right? Multiple times. But not claimed the first time. And that's got a sting because not only did your current employer 
want you to leave, <laughs> right? Or yes. at least under certain circumstances, but no one else wanted to take you. So right. yeah, now you feel like no one wanted you. At, at right. least if you get placed on waivers and someone claims you, it's like, right. okay, someone wanted someone me. Someone wanted me. Now right. no one wants me. No one wants you. Mm-mm. And so I was like, okay, well, you know, it's, I know, I know how the actual like win expectancy stuff works with the zombie runner. And so it's like, okay, if they get out of here with just having a love, just one run, like oh, that's survivable. You know, and then they had this like really great little play at home with Escobar out. And, you know, Brian O'Keefe is in there catching because they pinch ran for Cal Raleigh in the ninth. And he and Gabe Spire get together on a little out at home. I was like, great. And then it just fell all the way apart, Ben. Mm -hmm. It fell all the way apart. And so... I stand before you while I'm sitting before you, and you can't see me because we don't do the Zoom, but <laughs> I am demoralized, so that's a thing. But I I would like to just say once again that Julio is very good. He is a joy, a delight. He has, I'm anticipating your objections to the first half, second half distinction, but he has a 189 <laughs> WRC plus in the second half, Ben, mm-hmm. you know? That's yep. that's really very good. If you, mm-hmm. I don't know if you know, but very good. So they are out of a playoff position at this particular moment. They are tired. They, I mean, I assume, I don't know for sure, but I would be tired. I am tired, and I didn't do anything yesterday except get mad and eat chocolate ice cream. So <laughs> um, those were things that I did. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. where that's where things currently stand. Other. You know, people are disappointed by the performances of their team. As Michael Bauman noted to me, you know, like uh, Bryce Harper has hit several big home runs in games that the Phillies have lost. They haven't, you know, they're still in a playoff position, Mm -hmm. but they've had some, you know, ones that haven't felt great lately. It can change very fast. Yep. But um, it kind of needs to do that, you know? It needs to to change fast. And I'm not even going to get into the George Kirby stuff because I don't think we need to care about that. I don't know if you heard about this. Yes, I, I am kind of interested in that or your your take on that if you have one. Anyway, I hope... I do, a, I do have a take. Do you want my okay. George Kirby take? Yeah, well, let me say, I, I hope okay. that the ice cream helped, first of all. And oh, yeah, it was really also, good. Also... I guess if we're talking about devastating extra inning losses for teams that are trying to make the playoffs, you got to throw the Brewers-Yankees game the other day up there where the Brewers had no-hit the Yankees into extra innings behind Corbin Burns and others and then ended up losing that game after Giancarlo Stanton hit a game-tying two-run shot and then Kyle Gashioka, of all people, had his first walk-off a little bit different, maybe because the Brewers are more assured of a playoff spot than the Mariners are right now. And also, I think they were going for the sweep in that series. So things had been going OK for them lately. Yeah. But but that's a demoralizing one. You don't see that happen often. Typically, you know, hit a team you expect to beat it, certainly if the no hitter continues into extras. And it didn't happen that time. So there's that. And also, I think it's it's partly that. The Mariners, it just feels like the Astros kind of came together all of a sudden and were like, oh, that was cute. Mariners and Rangers, you you were going to make a run at winning this uh, division. Okay. But <laughs> they did literally get shut out by the Oakland they, A's yesterday. Yes. So, yeah, like, look, 
If they are on a high horse, I would invite them <laughs> to uh, find a smaller, uh, shorter mm-hmm. horse. You know, yeah, no, like it's, just it's find like, a tiny horse. We thought maybe this would be the year that the Dodgers and the Astros would relinquish control of their divisions, and the Dodgers certainly have not. The Astros might still, but also it's looking increasingly like probably not because they've got Altuve back and they've got Jordan back, and now they've got Michael Brantley back, which yeah, I wasn't really expecting him to come back at all let yeah. alone to contribute when he did. Yeah. And nine games in, he's hitting like vintage Michael Brantley. He's yeah. struck out one time in 31 play appearances. And that lineup was pretty top-heavy without him. So suddenly you stick a, a Michael Brantley there to lengthen that lineup. And now it's yeah. looking like, oh, right, these are the Astros again. Anyway, George Kirby, I did want to get your thoughts on this because this caused a big controversy, right? Especially among old schoolers among former baseball players who just this was red meat for them, right? Yeah. Like kids these days, you know, they were all dunking on George Kirby. So this was Friday. Yes. He came out for the seventh inning in a game that the Mariners were winning 4-2 to two at the yes. time against the Rays. Kirby had thrown 94 pitches, I believe, yes. to that point. Came back out. Got a ground out, then gave up a double to Jose Siri, and then a home run to Rene Pinto, and suddenly like the, the game was tied. Yes, and then George Kirby was replaced, and the Mariners went on to lose that game. They did lose that game. And in the immediate aftermath, after the game, Kirby was upset, and yep. he said, I wish I wasn't out there for the seventh, to be honest. I was at 90 pitches, actually 94, and I didn't think I really could go anymore, but it is what it is. So he wasn't just saying, well, in retrospect, I wish I hadn't been out there because it didn't go very well. (laughs) Maybe someone else would not have given up those two runs. He was saying, I didn't think I should have been out there and and I shouldn't have been out there. So he was kind of taking a shot at Scott Service, the manager. And then he ended up having a conversation with service, maybe multiple conversations with service. And then he apologized on Saturday. He said, obviously, I screwed up. That's not me. Skip's always got to pry that ball out of my hands. Just super uncharacteristic of me as a player and who I am out on that mound. I love competing. Like I said, I just screwed up. So in the way that that ballplayers have always lamented, oh, this generation doesn't play the way that we did back in my day, right? You had Roger Clemens and Jared Weaver and Mark Mulder and also, like, reasonable level-headed people like Brandon McCarthy coming out and and questioning why he was thinking that or certainly why he was saying that, at least. And then people were (laughs) then dunking on the dunk by pointing out that, well, actually, Jared Weaver, in your career, you did exactly the same thing in exactly the same situation you once wanted to be removed from a game. Anyway, Kirby was uh, sort of piled on by ex-players and also, I'm sure, by current fans, right? So what was what was your take on what he said and how he said it? So my take is largely this, which is that there's like the, the piece of it that I am kind of curious about and don't candidly have great insight into at the moment, which is like, does this... Is this a continuation of an existing tension between Kirby and Scott Service? And my sense is no, if for no other reason than, like, you know, George Kirby tends to go six, seven innings in games, right? Mm -hmm. I'm curious if this is a continuation of of an existing tension. And if 
And if it is, like, that to me is a much more pressing concern for the Mariners as an organization because George Kirby's very good. And mm-hmm. I think that he is important to, like, what they are going to do as a franchise going forward. And so you want him to be on the same page as the org. You want him and the org to have good and productive communication betwixt and between each other, right? So that question, I think, is one that is, like, worth contemplating. But, like, let's assume for the moment that, like, this is just an aberrant sort of day for him, right? I think that, like, he's 25 and he clearly, like, if I watched that game and he was in a way that is very uncharacteristic for Kirby, like, pretty wild early on. He walked a bunch of guys in the first inning of that game. It was clearly, like, a high-stress kind of endeavor for him. He goes back out there. He gives up the the game-tying home run. I am willing to say that this is a young person who was really frustrated at work and had a bad day and kind of spoke out of turn in a way that he clearly wants back. I'm sure the org would prefer hadn't happened and that like we can just move on from that. I always find the responses of old school guys in these situations to be interesting because like I think that the way that Kirby sounded to a lot of people, and I don't think this is like an unreasonable interpretation to be clear, was like kind of petulant, right? Like old school guys have very little patience for breakdowns in emotional regulation that read as petulant and much more sort of sympathy and room for imperfectly regulated feelings that manifest as anger. Mm -hmm. And I find that contrast really interesting because I don't know that either is like necessarily the most productive means of expressing oneself in that moment. Mm -hmm. So I think he's like a 25 year old who had a disappointing day at work and probably was done. And I wouldn't be surprised. And I I don't think that Scott Service like treats his guys badly or is like indifferent to player health or anything like that. So that's, that's not an accusation I'm leveling. But I would not be surprised if Scott Service was like, we have to save some bullpen arms. Like, please go back out yeah. there. Like, you gotta, mm-hmm. you gotta eat another inning for us. Because he did settle down after, you know, hit his first couple of goes where it was like, oh my God, is George Kirby okay? Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't be surprised if service was like, hey dude, you got to go back out there and then it backfires on them and they lose the game and it's disappointing and they feel kind of demoralized right now. much like they're malicious like Meg does. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, like I think it's really weird that we will like take moments like this largely in isolation and like freight them with all of this meaning about like George Kirby's personhood and like from what we know of him from the beats like he's incredibly competitive he takes his job really seriously he always wants the ball like he's not a petulant guy he's a really intense guy and I think him being a really intense guy manifested in him sounding kind of petulant Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to mean anything more than that And I found the people who were like, you know, reading into he doesn't want the ball in big situations. And I'm like, lest anyone forget, like this young man threw seven shutout innings against the Astros in the most important game this franchise has had in like Mm -hmm. 20 years uh, last year. So I think he can rise to big moments. It's just like a bad day at work for a young guy. I don't 
Yeah. I don't know, Ryan, man. Like, Ryan Divish, who, who covers the team for the Seattle Times, he tweeted, Few players I've covered take defeat and failure more personally than George Kirby. His frustration doesn't dissipate as quickly as others. What he says in obvious anger after a frustrating outing probably shouldn't be defining of him or his commitment to winning. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe don't express it that way or keep that sure. sentiment to yourself. But maybe, if anything, it's emblematic of his competitiveness, not his yeah. lack of competitiveness. But yeah. You'd rather have him say something like that than, say, kick a cooler and fracture his foot <laughs> in frustration. Not that it has to be either or, but but how many times have we seen a Jared Kelvick or a pitcher often come off the mound and punch something and then they hurt themselves? This, it's just a bad soundbite that you can walk back the next day and, and you're right back out there. And I think that, like, I understand that the considerations presented to a manager in moments like this are more than just what I'm about to say. So I know that it can't always be or isn't always what ends up ruling the day. But I think in general, if you're an org, you want your guys to have both a good sense of like when they need to be done and feel free to express that to you. Because if we correctly, I think, assume that all of these guys are super competitive. They all want to play. They all want to help their team win. They all want to be out there. You know, if a young guy comes to you and is like, hey, I I don't have it anymore. I don't have anything left in the tank. I think as a manager, you want that. You'd prefer that to a guy being like, oh, yeah, I can go back out there. And Mm -hmm. then in this case, like, the result probably would have been the same because Scott Service is like, get back out there. But, mm-hmm. like, I think you want these guys to come to you and say, it's, like, uh, it's done. I'm sorry. You know, mm-hmm. I I don't know. Like, I think that there are times when, like, you want guys to want the ball. But I think that we valorize confidence without engaging in, like, a critical perspective on that confidence. And I think... When these guys tell you they're done, it's not because they're, like, wimping out, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it tends to be because they're done. And, like, I think if you watched this Kirby start, it was incredible that he went as deep as he did, given, like, how the first couple innings went. So Yeah, and his yeah. last four starts have been subpar for him, so so maybe he's just a little bit gassed. But, but as you said, this is what he's been conditioned to do. He very rarely goes beyond where he was, right? His, his career high in the majors is 103 pitches at a start, right. and that was last month. So prior to last month, I guess it was 101 in May as a rookie. Last year, he never went above 100. I don't, like, this is what they have trained him to do. So so that, I think, is partly, it's sort of like a sign of the times, and I think that's why some of the old school guys jumped on it, like, back in my day, which in some of their cases was not that long ago. But, yeah. but pitcher usage has, has changed pretty rapidly just in the last several seasons, and really the upper tier, the upper echelon of, of pitch counts and innings, like, it's decreased pretty dramatically. And as you said, there's a reason for that. It's because in the past you might have pushed someone past there and they just would have gotten rocked anyway because of fatigue or times through the order effect. And now we know enough to pull guys. I do wonder whether sometimes it becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like if you... 
if you condition someone to expect 100 pitches to be basically a hard limit and right. you're going to get out of there, well, then you're never really giving them an opportunity to build up their arm to be able to do more than that or to be right. able to pitch out of a jam at that point. And so in that sense, it's like, you know, we have this whole generation of starting pitchers who don't really expect to go more than seven and they're just airing it out early and then they get gassed early because that's what you want them to do. You want them to be max effort pitchers. And we've kind of lamented the effects that that has from a spectator standpoint of, of pitchers getting pulled earlier consistently. So I don't know if that's a, a good thing for the game. I don't know if you can blame George Kirby for it, but but if you have a mindset where like, okay, I'm getting to the seventh inning here, I'm done. Or like if he's coming out for the seventh and he's thinking, gee, I'm just about at my max pitch count here. And that doubt is in the back of his mind in addition to whatever fatigue he's feeling right. in his arm. Then does that make him less likely to succeed? Because he's just looking over there like, okay, come get me now. Like this is when you always pull me. So then does that lead, does that kind of exacerbate the fatigue, because it's like psychologically, right. you're like, I, I never go past this point, right? So, sure. so so I could see that being a problem. Although Rob Maines has written about this at BP, you know, back when men were men and starters were ex expected to finish what they started, it's not like they didn't have the times through the order effect back then, too. They did, right? Like right. John Smoltz, in one of his many rants about the state of the game today, or probably many of his many rants, has said, like, well, if you don't get the chance to, to face the third order and, and go through it a bunch of times, then you're not going to know how to adjust to that and you're not going to have the stamina. And Kirby, in his career, has gotten knocked around when his pitch count is higher and when he's facing the order the third time through. And Smoltz will say, well, you've got to give them the opportunity to pitch through that or they're never going to get good at it. Except that in his day and even earlier, there was still a times the theater effect that was very right. significant. And you just had people pitch anyway because you just didn't have the deep bullpens that you had now. And there was just an expectation that starters would go deeper into games. So... I don't think you can chalk it up to it. It's not like we've created the times through the order effect by limiting how often guys go three or four times through the order. Yeah. And like, I really do think that, you know, we've joked before on this podcast about, you know, how George Kirby just doesn't walk anybody. Yeah. You know, he doesn't tend, to, like you said, he doesn't crest. He's not a guy who's like got a couple 115, 120 pitch outings sprinkled in there because he's mm -hmm. so efficient. He still is able to go deep into games pretty often. But like his first inning on Friday, he walked Yandy Diaz. Then he got a strikeout. Then he hit Harold Ramirez. Then he walked Randy Rosarena. And it was like, oh, well, George Kirby doesn't have it today. Like, he'll go entire games where he doesn't walk two dudes in a game, let alone two mm -hmm. dudes in an inning, right? He yeah. hit a guy. Like, he he wasn't able to finish his stuff inside. Like, it just, you know, I really do think this was, like, a kind of weird, aberrant evening, you know, and maybe mm -hmm. felt not great from the jump for him. And I think that the way he talked about it after the fact was like not especially productive. And it does invite questions of, well, what's the what's the dynamic like between yeah, him and Scott Service? Like, a, like are things when a manager okay? calls out a player right. publicly, usually you think 
shouldn't they have kept that in the clubhouse, right? right? And can't you just and talk this stuff works out? Works the other way too, and unless there's yeah. something like truly abusive going on right. that you you have to call it out publicly because sure. it's your only recourse, then generally it seems better to hash these things out internally. Right, and so I'm I'm not defending the like outburst is too strong, but like his decision to to talk about it the way that he did, mm-hmm. and he clearly wanted it back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but I. I don't know that this is like a thing that we should, as Divish said, like that the idea that this would be like our assessment of his character seems, it seems like there's insufficient data to draw that conclusion. Now, I don't know George Kirby. Maybe George Kirby's a petulant little jerk. I don't know. Like, I don't know him. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I don't think that you can reach that conclusion with any certainty based on this. So that's really... I I don't think he's a petulant little jerk, to be clear. I'm just saying, like, I don't know. I'm like, maybe he sucks. Who knows? (laughs) Yeah. I do wish that it were possible for for there to be a, a higher upper limit, like when a starter... Now, as we know, if you're cruising in that game, it doesn't mean you're going to continue to cruise. But right. but I wish it were possible, I guess, for you to get stretched out certain times that that we didn't treat 100 pitches as a, a hard yeah. limit in many cases because we've kind of overcorrected where yes. in an effort to go away from pitchers being abused, pitchers being overworked, okay, we've we've done away with these really high pitch count games, but we've perhaps gotten too far in the other direction. The pendulum has swung so far in the other direction that it's like eye-popping if someone throws 120 pitches, you know, it's like, oh, he's going for a no-hitter or something. Wow, this is a throwback. They actually left him in there. Right. It'd be nice, especially if you've got a great starter out there that you could occasionally leave them in a little longer. But it's hard because if you're always expecting to go 100, then you're mentally calibrating your stuff. You're like emptying the tank with that goal in mind. It's like... If you're exercising, like if you're running a race, let's say, and you get to the finish line and they say, actually, one more mile, right? Right. That's exhausting. Whereas if they told you from the start that the race was a mile longer, then you could ration your energy. You could pace yourself. It's like when you have a certain target in mind or or if you're doing a certain number of sets or something or a certain number of reps in a set and someone says, Oh, give me two more. It's like, no, I like I, I'm done. Like I was uh, trading too exhausted here. Like that last rep was was all I had left. And now you're telling me two more. I hadn't budgeted for that. And so it's similar with starters now where they're thinking, OK, 100 is the absolute limit. And, and he wasn't quite there yet, to be fair, but he was far enough that you wouldn't expect him to be able to get a, another full inning probably under his typical pitch count in. And so when you have that in mind from the start and then you're asked to, to push it a little more, then maybe you're just physically and psychologically unprepared for that. So I guess I wish there were a little more flexibility or or a little more tolerance for going deep when sure. it, the situation calls for it. But it's it's hard, I guess, to ask someone to do that one time when you never ask them to do it other times. So, yeah, that's where we are now. That's where we are now. A bit of other big news, although mm. maybe it falls into the predictable department, is that the Mets are hiring a new president of baseball operations. And what? <laughs> yes. And you'll never believe who it is. Is it me? David Stearns. Can you believe oh. the Mets hired David Stearns? Yeah. This, everyone sort of saw this coming. The writing had been on the wall for really multiple years, right? Because yep. 
The Mets uh, had tried to interview David Stearns in 2021, and that was denied at the time by the Brewers. And then David Stearns stepped down from the Brewers last year, at least, I guess, maybe in a full-time capacity. And as soon as he did that, everyone thought, oh, it means he's going to the Mets. And he said, no, he was uh, taking some time and taking a step back. And, and he did for some time, right? But no one thought that was the end of his career. And so as of August 1st, he has uh, been able to talk to other teams, I believe, and, of course, uh, he's been talking to the Mets, and they have reached an agreement. So, former <laughs> Mets intern David Stearns making yeah. his return to the team. I guess they, they should have hired him in the Wilpon era when he was uh, an intern at the time. They could have saved themselves a lot of trouble in searching for a new boss. It's, it's just like the Yankees, I'm sure, regret not hiring me full-time after I was an intern for them, you know, just yeah. constantly kicking themselves since then. Like, we we wouldn't be in this plight that we are now. We, you know, we'd have Ben Lindbergh running the department instead of Brian Cashman, and all would we well. Very similar situation with the Mets and David Stearns. So it's a full circle. It's a homecoming. But one of the most respected executives in MLB, he's been around he interned for a couple teams. He worked for the Guardians. Uh, he worked for the MLB office. He worked for the Astros. And then he worked for the Brewers for several years where he was able to turn them into a contender, keep them a contender without being a, a big budget team. They were never a high spending team. They were often not a very low-spending team during his tenure. Sometimes they were, but he made them a perennial playoff contender, always in it, despite yep. not being one of the biggest spenders and despite not really having a great farm system for most of his tenure. Yeah. He's just wheeled and dealed and managed to turn some big leaguers into better players than they were expected to be and has kept them in these races, and, and they're still in that situation. So. Mets are hoping to get themselves some of that Stearns magic starting next season. And they have cleared out some of their other sort of higher level ops people as well. So there have yes. been some changes on the scouting side. Um, so this was sort of, I mean, this was telegraphed a million different ways yeah. <laughs> prior to it being made official. But yeah, it seems like they are in position to sort of remake that front office and we'll see how, you know, that impacts things going forward. But they will be a very modern front office, one imagines, uh, in fairly short order here. I'm sure that that fan base, which is famous for being calm and cool mm -hmm. and collected, will ride the ebbs and flows of that uh, with grace and understanding mm -hmm. and no tweeting at all. <laughs> yeah, well... Billy Epler, supposedly, is uh, he's staying on as right. GM, so uh, we'll see how he handles that, yeah. whether there are any ruffled feathers with uh, sure. someone coming in above him. Although, I guess that has also been telegraphed all along. Steve Cohen has right. been pretty open about wanting to hire a president of baseball operations, really, since Sandy Alderson stepped down. The plan was, I think, for Alderson to help find someone and then for... Cohen to find someone to replace Alderson. So that's it's kind of been someone has been waiting in the wings all along. Yeah. And so now I guess there's some certainty there. He signed a five year contract 
So so he's there for the long haul. And, of course, uh, he's like a New York guy and grew up a Mets fan and was raised in Manhattan, right, worked for the Mets. So, yeah, it made sense. It was kind of an obvious pairing in a lot of ways. And we'll see, right? I guess he yeah. inherits a team that has a better farm system than it yes. used to, certainly after all the midseason moves they made this year. And I guess another wrinkle to this is that Craig Council is about to be a free agent, right? As of now, he's slated to be one of the best regarded managers in baseball. I don't know whether this will be a package deal where Stearns will want his own manager right. and Buck Showalter with a disappointing season this year, whether they will want to move on and, and whether Council would even want to do that. But he's had a, a heck of a run in Milwaukee. So that's another possible byproduct that could come from this. But yeah, the, the Mets could use, I guess, some of that Stern's magic of of being able to make players who are already in the big leagues better than they were to have uh, guys who weren't top prospects exceed expectations for them. So I don't know whether Stern's will want to turn this into a winner immediately and, and build on the core that they still have in place after that mini fire sale at the deadline, or whether he'll look at this as more of a long-term project with his long-term contract. So maybe we will get a, a sense for that when he talks to the press and perhaps opens up about his plans. But I don't know. I don't know whether this makes it more or less likely that they will try to turn things around immediately or take the long view. Yeah, I I don't know the answer to that. If I did, they would have hired me, Ben. Perhaps. We can perhaps assume like a rigor to the decision making and an openness to new directions and perhaps a, a final like scraping out of the remnant of prior Mets regimes that have sometimes like seasoned things that have happened this season in a way where we're like mm -hmm. now we will we won't ask that question anymore maybe <laughs> i mean maybe we will because maybe they're cursed you know like we should contemplate the possibility that yeah nothing will change because they're an older roster it's going to take a while for the young guys in the farm to get where they need to go and they're in a competitive division. And even though they came, they've been coming some of the way toward being like a very modern front office in the last couple of years. That stuff takes time from like a hiring and infrastructure perspective. And they're going to have to bring in new people. And like all of that stuff can take a while. And those would all be reasonable reasons or they're cursed. Well, I guess this takes away one excuse or explanation other than they're cursed. Right. right. So. So if, if they still can't get it together, and again, like the, this team was very successful in 2022. I don't sure. want to suggest they haven't had any success. But, but now they have the big spending owner, which is mm -hmm. what they lacked during the Wilpon years. And then they went and got a respected manager in Buck Showalter. And now they've gotten the respected GM or president of baseball operations in David Stern. So... 
each step along the way, it was like, well, maybe if we had a better owner, maybe if we had a better manager, maybe if we had better players, maybe if we had a better front office. Not that Billy Epler was not respected, but obviously things had not gone great in Anaheim under him. And so now you're going and getting the top, right? Like this is the number one available guy, I think. So if they can't make it work with Stearns and with Cohen's money, then <laughs> then there will be like, well, now what, right? Like we've right. we've tried everything. Like we we got money bags and we got the smart front office guy who's had success elsewhere. So now it's just like, okay, they're removing all the possible impediments to success. And if they continue not to have success and things backfire like they did this season, then yes, you will have to just conclude that they're cursed and there's some inherent metsness that prevents them from, from ever winning, right? But, but for now, all you could do is just take away these other possible explanations and things that were hampering them. So, And you can see why people wanted Stearns or why Cohen would have wanted Stearns because of course it's always going to be appealing to an owner if an executive not just wins but wins without spending a ton of the owner's money right Right. because we've certainly seen that Cohen is willing to spend money that he has a lot of money to spend but he would prefer not to spend money if he could win without doing it so I think the highest the Brewers payroll has ranked in Stearns' tenure has been 17th in any given season so I don't know that the Mets want to get that low or, or have any reason to get that low. But if they could not be number one with a bullet, then I'm sure Steve Cohen would be pleased about that. And part of that would come from developing players who right. are making league minimum or are not making free agent or arb salaries. And I'm sure that he hopes that that can happen, right? Dodgers East or Astros East, I suppose. But that makes you a top prospect as a front office executive. It's it's like not just being Dave Dombrowski and maybe delivering a championship or a contender, but but also with a high payroll, but being a Friedman or a Stearns and winning without spending a ton of your boss's money. The boss appreciates that. Sure. Yeah. And I think that the it's always interesting when these guys sort of change teams and are in a, a spot that has, in theory, a different philosophy towards spending to see like what of it was mandate and what of it was hey this mm-hmm. is my approach to team building and i think we're gonna get a good answer to that shortly here a couple other things so pete crow armstrong came up yet another top prospect promoted in this case by the cubs and maybe he can be better than mike talkman maybe he can at least give them a good glove in center yeah but we've talked a lot about top prospects coming up. And I don't know if it's new exactly, or or maybe it's just a return to the way it usually worked. But it does seem like this is maybe more than in recent years that we've seen top prospects coming up in the thick of pennant races. It it really does add something. And it's, yeah. it, we had Eric on to talk about this huge group of prospects that came up just all in August and and we've had several more in September. We talked yeah. about Jordan Lawler and now Crow Armstrong. It's just more and more, it, it seems like no one's really off the table when it comes to these players being promoted. 
And it's not just at the end of the season. We've seen them come up early in the season, too, or mid-season. And so you look at the NL wildcard race, and it's exciting because suddenly you have Jordan Lawler yeah. with the Diamondbacks, and you have Ellie with the Reds, and you have Yuri Perez with the Marlins. Like, every team has some exciting prospect who came up at some point this season. But this late, like, August, September, it seems like we're seeing more of this than we have in recent years. and. I don't know why exactly, but I'm all for it. It's uh, very exciting. I love just like getting a glimpse of the future, but also not just like, okay, team's out of it. We're going right. to give some guys a chance, like Jason Dominguez, for instance. Right. More like, no, we're in the thick of it. And also, we think maybe our top prospect can help us immediately. So let's go for it. Like, I love that. Yeah. It's a time of year that, you know, the the pennant races, the playoff races, all of that can add its own excitement. And then to have them infused with like, new young guys, you know, whether they are lifting a contender to like a, a solid playoff footing or, you know, hopefully not during their UCLs, but like giving fans of teams that are out of it something to get excited about and, and hopefully setting them up to be, you know, ready and have adjusted at least a little bit to big league pitching and to come into camp with like a real shot to make an opening day roster. Like it's very exciting. It's very mm -hmm. exciting. Yeah. And Joe Sheehan wrote about this recently, and he identified a few factors. First of all, he noted this is not historically unusual, especially when you used to have 40-man rosters in September. So you'd have this huge expansion, and then that was before the massive expansion of pitching staffs, too. So you had more room for position players. And so it was not uncommon to see really good players come up and just, uh, you know, get a taste and a cup of coffee and dip their toe into the Things right. in September, but it seems like it's been ramped up in recent years. He thinks it's because a maybe it's just a young players' game more period these yeah. days, and and we have seen the aging curve sort of shift earlier. At least some of the analyses I've seen, obviously since the PD era when careers were lasting unnaturally long, perhaps, but. But maybe it's just, you know, faster and pitches are faster and everything's faster and you have to keep up with that as a youngin and that helps a little bit. And also maybe there's just better development these days. And so guys are getting good training in college. Maybe they're able to get through the minors more quickly. They're exposed to that technology. You have better coaching it might be interesting to take a league-wide look at just whether prospect promotion has accelerated. Yeah. But it, it certainly seems like in, in some cases we're skipping some steps or, or cutting some corners or maybe not. Maybe it's just taking less time than it used to. So that might be one thing. And then also he says, well, you have the expanded playoff field. So right. more teams are in it and can convince themselves that they're in it. And so if they still have something to play for when September rolls around, then maybe you're more likely to call up one of these top prospects if you think they can help you. And then lastly, the CBA changes. So right. it, it does seem like in an effort to combat service time manipulation, there have been changes that seem to have encouraged teams not to hold back prospects as much as they had been and to get guys like Julio last year on opening day rosters. And there are some incentives that are in place to encourage them to do that. And then maybe that kind of carries over 
too late in the season because if you're planning to have someone be up on opening day the following season, right? maybe it doesn't really cost you anything to call them up in September of the previous season, right? So they're not going to like get enough time to undo their rookie eligibility, but you can just have them get some seasoning so so that they're not completely unexposed to the majors when they make their major league debut on opening day the next season, but you still have those incentives right. in place because they're still qualifying for rookie eligibility, right? Yeah. So for for all those reasons, maybe the game has changed and and also the CBA has changed and the playoff format has changed. All these things are promoting promotion, I guess, yeah. right? And that's good. I, I'm yeah. not totally in favor of all of those changes, like I still have mixed feelings about the expanded playoff format for one, but if this is one byproduct of those changes, then I'm all for it because uh, I love getting a glimpse of these guys and yeah. even more so if it's not just like, all right, silver lining of uh, a going nowhere dead end season, we, we get to take a look at a few of these guys who will be part of the next good team. But no, like they get to be part of the currently good team. That's yeah. really fun. It's really fun. It's really exciting. And I, I'm i with you. I still have a, a squishy affection for the expanded playoff format, although, mm-hmm. you know, listeners will be like, hasn't your stupid baseball team missionary <laughs> of that expanded playoff format mm-hmm. into that? I say... Shut up, you know. That's <laughs> That's not yeah. the that's not the conversation we're having right now, is it? <laughs> I take it back. Shut up is so rude. That's such a that's like uh, easily one of the top 10 rude things you can say with no swears. Don't you think? Shut yeah. up. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty rude thing. So, you know, I'm not saying cut it out cuz people should know like I'm not perfect, you know, in mm-hmm. case anyone was confused on that score. Um, but like don't tell people to shut up. That's rude. Mm-hmm. Um yes. so anyway, I like seeing the young guys and you know, it's not a flawless system and there are still instances where teams are being kinda shifty with guys and I don't think that we've like designed our way perfectly out of service time manipulation of any stripe, but it does seem like People, and by people I mean front office executives, are like responding in ways that we want them to, to incentives that I, when they were initially proposed, was like, I don't know if this is going to be enough. And it has seemed to be enough a lot of the time. So that's Mm -hmm. pretty cool. Mm -hmm. It was getting pretty annoying then, you know, kind of like someone saying, shut up. Really annoying. (laughs) So rude. Mm -hmm. And I guess in some of these cases, it's like uh, maybe a panic move not not a sure. panic move in that it doesn't make sense but just in the sense that things aren't going great so let's right. call someone up like the diamondbacks are slipping okay let's go get jordan lawler or the rangers are slipping let's go get evan carter carter yeah yeah they wouldn't do it if they didn't think it would not make them better but right. maybe the fact that they needed some help right yeah. to reinforce their flagging fortunes okay maybe we can call up a top prospect Ben, speaking of Jordan Lawler and the the man he displaced, you know mm-hmm. what uh, email I got today? What's that? This was from like dbacks.com because, you know, I've bought tickets and stuff. Mm-hmm. Voting is live for the 2023 Roberto Clemente Award. Oh, Do you know who yeah. their nominee is? It's Nick, <laughs> Nick Ahmed. Ahmed. Yeah. Yeah, man. Uh, Oops. Yeah. Whoops. Yeah, that's like the the good guy community service philanthropy award. <laughs> so yeah. awkward timing. Yeah. <laughs> 
given to the player who represents positive contributions on and off the field. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, I'm it's sure he's the not the first part that teams care about yeah. the most, unfortunately, yeah. or that's how it is. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and, and last uh, major thing to bring up here. So it was reported by Bob Nightingale <laughs> that Mike Trout, if he wants to pursue a trade, mm-hmm. that the Angels would accept it, right? Mm-hmm. So so uh, consider the source here and also consider the player. Is Mike Trout going to be the one who would come out and demand a trade or request a trade? I don't know, right? Uh, he has historically seemed pretty pretty pleased to be with the Angels. Uh, he's uh, opted to stay with them multiple times. Yep. But things have not gone Changed. great for them. And uh, if Otani is leaving and, you know, Trout has indicated that he wants to have a conversation with the team this offseason to th- see where things are going. And if they're being honest, I don't know that they can say things are going in a great direction, right? So, again, this is a a short item. He just said the Angels, perhaps for the first time, are open to trading Mike Trout if he indicates to them that he wants out. Now, he has no trade rights, so he could kind of uh, decide where he wants to go if, if they were to open things up. And then the other question is, how much interest would there be in Mike Trout? Now, I, I would kind of like to see him play somewhere else just because if you think the Angels have been depressing to this point, it might get even worse because if Otani leaves, as he is presumed to, I don't know that things are going to get better for them in the short term. And it would be nice to get to see him in the playoffs again and get to play for a good team. Thing is, he has $248 million dollars due to him over the next seven years as part of his current contract, which if he were healthy and durable and still playing at a high level, then teams would be lining up under those terms. They'd be happy to have Mike Trout at those terms. However, that has not been the case for him lately, as we have discussed. He has not been durable, and this season, even when active, he was not his typical superlative self. So I asked Dan Zimborski to fire up the Zips machine and tell me what Zips projects for him and mm. what kind of contract his projection system would project for him. So Zips says that if you were going to give Mike Trout a seven-year contract, that what it quote-unquote should be based on his projected performance is $155 million, which is mm. almost $100 million less. less than what it is. Yeah. A lot of that is just that it doesn't project him to play a lot because of his recent track record. So Dan said, if you start him with 600 plate appearances in 2024, if you just say that he will have basically a full season in 2024, then it goes up to $224 million, which is still a little less than than he's due, right? So that would suggest, like, if, if teams are going by their projection systems and their projections are similar to Dan's, then in theory, no one would want Mike Trout unless the Angels were willing to eat a lot of money to send him somewhere. Or if you wanted to get prospects back, then you'd really have to absorb a lot of that contract. And based on recent events, it doesn't really seem like the Angels would necessarily be willing to do that. If anything, they seem more in the salary dump market than the Met-style 
eat some salary so that we can get prospects back market. Yeah. Like Dan is saying, and this is kind of depressing, you know, we answered a question last week about what are the odds that Mookie Betts can catch up to Mike Trout in career war. Zips is saying that for the entire rest of Trout's career, he projects to amass about 20 more war in mm. total, which is two seasons for healthy <sighs> peak trout, right? So yeah. that's that's sort of sad, right? Yeah. However, as Dan noted to me, you never know exactly what teams might do with a player like Trout because sure. he's a superstar and because he's been the best player in baseball and a team might talk himself into he will be again the way that the Tigers kind of went against the projections with the Miguel Cabrera extension. Sure. Now, that was years ago, and maybe that extension has become a cautionary tale that yeah. teams have internalized and would not do that again. But yeah. yeah, I guess that's the question. Like, would anyone want Mike Trout with his current contract? What would it take to get something back or to move him? And would the Angels be willing to do what it would take? I think the answer to that is... No, they would not. I think that maybe this conversation is really different like a year from now if he comes back and he plays a largely healthy season and he's still open to being moved, then maybe it's different. But like, you know, when we talked about him, I said, I think we think of him as injury prone now. And I mm -hmm. think that that's the right way to think about him, unfortunately. And unless they're willing to eat a lot of that deal just to to be done. I don't imagine that they're going to really bring much back in the way of prospects that would make it enticing. Like, I think they have to Mets it if, and I mean yeah. that in a positive way. Um, if they're going to, so rare that that, yeah, that but like I do, way. like they'd yeah. have to, they'd really have to be willing to do that and say, look, we know all the concerns here. And we know that particularly if you're looking at him as a corner guy, which I imagine whatever team is would be in the market for him would be thinking of him as like some combination corner DH, right? Mm -hmm. That yeah. you, you got to eat a lot of money for that. At least if, if what you want is prospects of any profile. Mm -hmm. And even then I think that it would be, it's not that there wouldn't be any suitors for that, but I think that it would be a shorter list than you might think because even if, let's say, they got it down to exactly what Zips projected, mm -hmm. I don't know, that might still feel like a lot to a team when you're talking about a guy who can't reliably stay on the field at this point and isn't, probably isn't a center fielder anymore and is you know, 32 years old. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it so happened so fast, Ben. I know, it did. It, Man. It, reminds, it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about, like, could the Angels package Mike Trout with Albert Pujols to get right. out from under the Albert Pujols, Pujols contract? Yeah. And now Trout is in the Pujols position. Not... Not quite to that extent. No, He's definitely younger not and, to that and better, extent. and there's much more hope that he could be great again. Yes. It's, but, but still, it's sort of the same conversation, and that is very sad. It's very sad. You know, it wasn't that long ago that I was joking, like, look, you know, if they feel like they need to move Trout's contract to trade Otani to the Mariners, like, I guess mm -hmm. I'll deal with it. And now I'm like, what do I want that contract? <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> anyway, if you were hoping that 
this offseason might be spiced up, this uh, slow market that we've been talking about might be enhanced by a, a Mike Trout trade sweepstakes. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that the conditions are ripe for that to happen. I mean, it, it could happen, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, teams I hope do he gets all... dealt. I, I hope he does. But if he yeah. wants to, you know. Yeah, right. If he might just decide, to, I like being here, even though I never win, I'm comfortable. But yeah, for us, it, it'd be nice. I mean, I hate moving, so mm-hmm. I would be like, look, it, it's not ideal, and this is going to be a bad team for a long time, but I don't have to pack any boxes. Yeah, although like, if you had a multi-multi-million-dollar contract, you could say, I'm just going to show up at my new mansion, and I will pay people to move everything from my old mansion and take care of everything that is normally makes moving a hassle. Yeah, it's, it's still even if you have all the money in the world, uh, you've still got your family and you've got a kid. Yeah. and you know you got to find new schools and uh, you got to find out what restaurants you like and everything. But yeah, but yeah, I think it's probably a, a lot closer to painless if you are mega rich. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, I think most things are closer to painless if you're mega rich. But yeah, mm-hmm. you still have to adjust to a new environment. You know. You have to know, like, man, I got to take this route because it has a protected left. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't really believe in prison except for people who don't take advantage of their protected lefts when they're driving. So, you know, it's like it's still a disruption, particularly when you have young kids and he has it. He, you know, he and his wife have a kid. So mm-hmm. it's a thing that they have to do. Although I believe that he like lives in the Northeast during the off season. So maybe he's like, Meg, moving is old hat for me. I am, you know, I move a couple times a year. Mm-hmm. God, it seems like it would be so terrible. I would, <laughs> you know, I, I think about the things that would matter to me as a free agent. And then I'm like, maybe the players should get together and have me signed somewhere because the quotes I would give, like George Kirby could say whatever he wants. People would be, you know, the, the olds would be on me all the time. They'd be like that Meg, she's terrible. And I'd be like, yeah. yeah." (laughs) Hmm. All right. And uh, just a couple of quick follow-ups to things we talked about last week. First of all, a number of people pointed out that when we did the stat blast where I, I kept citing wins above average and we kept saying wah, wah. first of all, missed some some great Wario sound oh. bite drop opportunities there. But Shame also, if we went with wins above mean, then mm. it could have been wham and yeah. we could have gotten George Michael sunk stuck in people's heads and, and that might be better if yeah. if at some point – wins above average becomes more prominent, then maybe we could rebrand from wham to wham, and that might be a bit more palatable. Ben, I think you just got to have faith. Mm. <laughs> well done. It's not, a, it's not a wham song, but <laughs> yeah. it doesn't yeah. really cool. Yeah, we could switch from the Edwin Starr song to the George Michael song that people yeah. will constantly bring up. And yeah. uh, also speaking of the market this winter, which, as we've said, seems to be dominated by Asian players. Yeah. Also, Yoshinobu Yamamoto pitched another no-hitter. So the, yeah. the stats that I cited recently, now his ERA is down to 1.2-something. It's ah. ridiculous. So this was his second career no-hitter with Brian Cashman and other MLB executives in attendance. So. Terrific. Yeah, the the bidding is going to be off the charts for him. And it's it's not even just that you have uh, multiple prominent Asian players who are going to be free agents this winter, but also some of the, the recent players like 
Hassan Kim, for instance, yeah. right? Like didn't immediately translate to the majors, but now he's a star, right? Yeah, he's terrific been, season. He's been fantastic. Yeah. And Seiya Suzuki, right? Yeah. Again, like had some injuries, took some time to maybe yep. acclimate to the league, but he's yep. been great lately. Yeah. And I, we talked about Senga recently yep. and how well uh, he's made that transition. So, again, like among the, the prominent players and, and Masataka Yoshida, who I guess has been as defensively challenged as advertised, yeah. right? But but the bat has, has been pretty solid, right? Yeah. So, so you have to go back to like, I don't know, like Yoshi Sutsugo or, or something for like mm. the last guy who just like Man, didn't I really. I about Sutsugo in a long time. Yeah, he's been bouncing around, but he just didn't really translate, didn't really pan out. But Is for he the on most 40 part. I man, he's he's been on and off, and I, I forget exactly where he is right now. Which uh, he yeah. signed a minor league contract with the Giants on Monday. Right. This yeah. was okay. August twenty first. That ah, okay on Monday, according to Susan Slosser. Mm-hmm. So he appears to be in double A with San Francisco at the moment. Oh, well, all right. <laughs> yeah, the fact that I'd, I'd lost track of him entirely, yeah. that sort of speaks to how things have gone for him. But yeah. but for the most part, even if there are some initial growing pains or stumbles in the transition, these guys have made good. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see the, the sweepstakes for some of these players this winter. And then... Also, we talked about second careers for big leaguers and and what a good second career, not even like a side gig, but Mm -hmm. kind of a a full-time second job would be. And a couple people have pointed out musician would be a Mm. good one. And there have been some. So Ed, Patreon supporter, cited Lee May, who was a player in the 50s and 60s and 70s and was also the lead singer of uh, Arthur Lee May and the Crowns in the 50s, a doo-wop group, pretty Terrific. pretty prominent singer. And then, of course, uh, pretty famously, too, uh, we got an email from Dave about Scott Radinsky, mm. who's a uh, lead singer of the punk rock band Pulley. And, you know, that's a prominent band, and he's talked about, uh, Dave writes, the similarities between playing baseball and performing music in terms of being part of a team, being on the road, and cool. feeding off the energy of the crowd. So, cool. yeah, I mean, it's it's performances. It's It's often, like... Sort of the same schedule, like yeah. kind of nocturnal, you know, ball players yeah. at least these days playing a lot of night games. Uh, musicians are usually going to be playing concerts at night. So you're always uh, like living out of a suitcase and waking up late, right? Yeah. So a lot of similarities there. And I guess some flexibility too. I mean, it would be tough to like be touring and on the road as a musician and a ball player at the same time, as we sure. discussed with Ben Gibbard. He can't really watch Mariners games and also be the front man of Death Cabin Postal Service at the same time. <sighs> They're trying to resolve <laughs> that conflict for him. At the moment, <laughs> I guess but... that's true. Yeah. Might not actually turn out to be a conflict oh. as it happens. Oh. But yeah, if if you were, you know, you have the flexibility to like, okay, it's uh, the baseball offseason. I can go in the studio or I could tour right. over the winter and the fall. So you, you have some flexibility and you can bring your guitar on the road. Obviously, there are a lot of like amateur ballplayer musicians sure. who are known just for getting their guitar out or drumming or whatever it was. Like the Yankees I grew up watching having right. Bernie Williams and Paul yeah. O'Neill. But then, but then some of them have legitimate second careers as yeah. professional musicians who are not necessarily like a two-way thing where they're full-time 
players and and musicians at the same time, but like Bernie Williams going on to be a Grammy winner, right? Or yeah, you know, there there are a lot of uh, Bronson Arroyo, right? Like <laughs> there are a lot of examples of of that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, like I think that. Well, I don't know. I'm given to understand that, like, there is maybe a meaningful gap between Bernie Williams and Arroyo. Is <laughs> that perhaps? A, I don't is know. That rude of me to say to Arroyo. I don't mean to slight him, but like, I mean, like, maybe <laughs> Williams is like a classically trained guitarist. Like, yeah, he, and he has I a guess Grammy not, nomination. Not, you know, yes, Grammy nomination, not not winning. And I guess it was sure, a Latin but like, Grammy, but but a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, he like if he got out. Here's there are a couple kinds of musicians for me in, in in like my interaction with them in real life. There are the there are the folks who get out their instrument and I'm like cool, and there are the folks that get out their instrument. And I'm like oh, this is what our <laughs> evening's gonna be, eh? Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't say that second one out loud because again, rude. Mm-hmm. But uh, I I think that if if Bernie Williams got his guitar out, I'd be like oh cool, let's right. hear what you got, Bernie. You know that mm-hmm. would yeah yeah. All right. And then lastly, we answered an email about what if a switch hitter decided selectively to hit from the same side against certain pitchers? Would that make sense? Yeah. And we kind of came down on the side of probably not. The question was like, if you had a pitcher with reverse splits, might it make sense for the switch hitter to hit from the same side? And we thought, A, you don't have that many guys who have true reverse splits. It's more common with pitchers than with hitters, but still you need a bigger sample size and everything. And Or at least you need to have some indication based on the stuff and their repertoire that they might have true reverse splits. And we talked about the Joe Madden precedent for you might have a, a same-handed leaning lineup against someone who throws a lot of change-ups, let's say a, a pitch with platoon splits, that kind of thing. Sure. And we talked about how it might not make sense because if you're a switch hitter, you're used to right. pretty much always having the platoon advantage. And so it might be disruptive for you to hit from the same side, even if the pitcher's characteristics seem to support it. But it was pointed out to us after that episode that Tommy Edman of the Cardinals mm-hmm. has basically been doing this this season. Mm. I was unaware of this, but he has been like a selective switch hitter. He's been, I guess he called it a, a switch switch hitter, right? So he, I guess he experimented with this in 2021, but he's been doing it more regularly this year where, again, going by the pitch characteristics, he'll be a, a switch switch hitter or kind of a pitcher by pitcher switch hmm. hitter or a flipped Switch hitter, Derek Gould of, wrote about oh, this. <laughs> those are great names. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll link to, to the article, but he said this was earlier this season. It's almost like a learning process trying to figure out which guys I feel comfortable hitting right on right against and which guys it doesn't make as much sense. I think the more experience I get going, doing this, the more wisdom I'll have. And basically, like, he was struggling, I guess, hitting from the left side against righties. He wasn't really slugging against them much. And and he had been exclusively a right-handed hitter as recently as high school. And so he started looking at what pitchers might he do better against right on right, not looking just at splits, but like pitch shape and pitch types and release point. 
and angle and all of those things that it's easier to analyze now than it used to be. And so Ali Marmol said he's experienced hitting left-handed against certain pitchers and seeing that from a result standpoint, there's a style of pitcher pitcher that gives him trouble and he's a smart player and he's going to play the odds. If that pitch gives him trouble, it's the pitcher's strength and it's my weakness, then I'm going to hit from the other side. Being smart about who you do it against gives you a higher chance. Hmm. So he started doing it. He tried this in 2021 against Tyler Maley, who had an off-speed pitch that Edmund thought his right-handed swing would be better against than his left-handed swing. So now he's been doing it more regularly. And I don't know if you can say that it's working really well. I mean, looking at his his splits, I, I, I guess it's not backfiring horribly, but like... So as a right-handed batter against lefties this year, he's been pretty good, 789 OPS. Versus right-handed pitchers as a lefty, he's had 263 plate appearances, 683 OPS, not so great. But then he's had 56 plate appearances so far versus righties as a righty. And in those plate appearances, he has a 670 OPS, so sort of similar to how he's done versus righties as a lefty, but worse than he's done versus lefties as a righty. So I don't know, based on that, if you can say it's necessarily working or not working, but right. he's been doing it. And that seems very unusual. I'll have to try to look up if there are precedents for a, a switch hitter, like a predominantly switch hitter having this many plate appearances, 56 plate appearances, where he's hitting from the same side and just choosing not to switch hit and get the platoon advantage. So unusual, but I, I thought this was a hypothetical question, and actually it's been happening this season. Who knew? Someone knew, but we didn't know. Bernie Williams wrote a book that has a foreword by Paul Simon, and he got a Bachelor of Music from the Manhattan School of Music in 2016. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, got, he's got credentials. Yeah, he does have credentials. His book is about the link between musical and athletic performance. So mm -hmm. I think that if we are interested in this question, we should maybe read Bernie Williams' book. Yeah, or we should talk to him, one of my favorite players. <laughs> It'd be a pleasure for me. Yeah, and, it'd be cool. uh, Also a switch hitter, who I don't think ever ever did the Tommy Edmond switch hitter, switch hitter thing. We'd have to ask. Yeah, or actually, look, I, I guess he's got uh, 23 career plate appearances versus righties as a right-handed batter. So, Maybe. Uh, unless that's a data error of some sort, at, at some Maybe. point, he did. He tried it. Cool. All right, and we will end with a brief future blast from 2058 and from Rick Wilbur, an award-winning writer, editor, and college professor who has been described as the dean of science fiction baseball. In 2058, Spanish and Italian baseball teams made a statement about the global health of the game as Real Madrid bested AC Milan in dramatic fashion in the seventh game of the European Division Series, coming back from a drubbing in Game 1 to win four straight, two of them in Milan and the next two in front of the delirious Real Madrid fans in their new 40,000-seat Telefonica Field baseball park built next door to Santiago Bernabeu Stadium, home of Real Madrid soccer, 
The global audience was near the billion mark for the two famous clubs' first meeting in the European Divisional Championship Series, led by star pitcher Alvaro Tor and the hot bats of the Lonzo brothers, Hugo and Mateo. Real Madrid then took four straight from the Asian Division winners, the Oryx Buffaloes, all on the road in Japan before coming to America to battle the Los Angeles Dodgers, who put up a good fight but couldn't contain the hot bats of Los Blancos and went down in six games. Spanish baseball had arrived. And it's a truly global game. I hope that there's faster air travel in this era or there's going to be a lot of travel time and a lot of jet lag potentially. Yeah, we got to learn about teleportation. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I guess we've established that we don't have to do a Mike Trout trading game episode the way we did with Otani. It would be sort of sad. The winning team's offer might just be, I will take Mike Trout and his contract. Not quite as fun as putting together a package of top prospects. Also not quite as fun as supporting Effectively Wild on Patreon, which you can do by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Julian R., David L. Stevens, Matt Thompson, Michael Workman, and Ted Miles. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only. There are even some people who don't regularly listen to the podcast who pay for the Patreon just to get into the Discord group. It's that inclusive a community, high-caliber baseball discussion, and discussion of all sorts of topics. So if you listen to the podcast, then you should really get yourself in there. You can also get access to monthly bonus episodes and playoff live streams coming up next month, plus discounts on merch and ad-free fangrass memberships and so much more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site, but anyone and everyone can contact us via email at podcast at fangrass.com, where you can send us your questions and comments and your theme songs if you want to add one to our intro and outro rotation. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We'll be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. Number one fan grass baseball podcast. It's that cast, it's that blast. TOPS Plus when the stats need contrast. Zips and steamer for the forecast. 